In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. All historical evidence suggests that the Quran is a document that comes from the mid-7th century from Western Arabia, you know, basically from the time of the Prophet. Now, you might not believe it's revelation, but there's really no evidence that it's anything but this document that comes from that one time period. And it essentially hasn't gone through any changes since then. And what evidence there is of diverse, let's say, diversity in reading or in understanding is not uncovered by non-Muslim scholars. It's actually transmitted and preserved by Muslim scholars. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Manwar podcast. Salim here. Joined by my co-host, Irfan. Assalamu Hey, Assalamu Salim. How's it going? Alhamdulillah, I'm glad to have you here, and we're uh, we're glad to have back another a guest we've had in the past, um, our uh, dear Dr. Jonathan Brown. Assalamualaikum. Assalam. So I think uh, one of the topics I wanted to kind of bring up was the idea of when we say mushaf, and when you look at the literal meaning, it means this collection of pages, and so. Muslims may be familiar with the fact that different sahabas, different who people who are scribes to the uh, Prophet were writing down a revelation as it came, but maybe fuzzy on some of those details. And then obviously the idea of this codex and its chronological timeline. Um, so when we talk about the timeline of how the Quran was actually put together, but also the development it has and how that kind of informs our own sense of faith in the sacred scripture as we look towards the future. Mm -hmm. So kind of wanted to get your take first on, you know, maybe helping us as an audience define what is Mm Al-Mus'haf and and why it becomes so synonymous with the the Quran itself. Yeah. Well, um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I mean, I think it's interesting to ask know what the Quran is and um, I mean there's a Muslim scholars who defined it in a number of ways you could say you know the Quran is the word of God uh, you could say you know in the Arabic language uh, uh, revealed to the Prophet Muhammad um, by the agent you know through the medium of uh, the angel Gabriel um, you could say that the Quran is uh, the uncre- you know, uncreated word of God would be the general the Sunni position um, uh, if it's created, it doesn't mean it's not revelation. It just means that it's, you know, it's not eternal. It's something God creates as opposed to being... Which is like the Mutazalai. Yeah, you know, or the, or the uh, 12 or Shia position. Um, and, uh, but another interesting way is, you know, Al-Ghazali, uh, Imam Al-Ghazali has a definition. I think it's Al-Quran, ma bayna al-Mus'haf right? So the Quran is what is between the two covers of the Mus'haf that came to us by massively parallel transmission. So that's the, in the, the interesting definition of the Quran because it actually says like the Quran is what's in the Mus'haf that came to us, that's arrived to us by massive, diverse, uh, parallel chains of transmission. So there was no like coercion. There was no, no. So the idea is that there's nobody like basically, you know, like we're not missing it because yeah, it's, it's the completely, same thing from generation uh, to generation. You know, it's, it's, it's historical attestation is, is absolutely certain. And I think that's, you know, uh, one of the things that's most interesting about the Quran is that is the historical reliability, and you know, because I'm a you know professor I do in Islamic studies, and you know, I deal with a lot of um, uh, the kind of Western histor- historical criticism of the Quran, and uh, the bottom line is that there's just not that much because the you know Western scholars since the essentially since the the 1800s, you know, they they assume that, um, and a lot of some of them still assume that the Quran sort of has the same history as the biblical scripture. And the biblical scripture, of course, comes together over a period in the, in the case of the Old Testament of, you know, over a thousand years. In the case of the New Testament, you know, um, 
around 300 years. And so the idea is, you know, oh, well, it goes through a historical process and it changes and people delete stuff and they add stuff and they edit stuff and they doctor stuff. But uh, and so they just keep assuming that's the case with the Quran. But uh, all the historical evidence suggests that the Quran is a document that comes from the mid seventh century from Western Arabia, you know, basically from the time of the Prophet. Now, you might not believe it's revelation, but there's really no evidence that it's anything but this document that's comes from that one time period. And it essentially hasn't gone through any changes since then. And what evidence there is of diverse, let's say, diversity in reading or in understanding is not uncovered by non-Muslim scholars. It's actually transmitted and preserved by Muslim scholars in their study of the different readings of the Quran. So I think, you know, there's uh, uh, in uh, the, the 1970s, there was this stash, I think 1979, there was this stash of uh, old documents that were found in the, the basically like a crawl space above the roof of the great mosque in Sana'a in Yemen. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, the story. Because, you know, pretty modern Muslims, uh, they didn't throw away stuff that had the name of God written on it. They would know what to do with it. So they would, you know, burn it or something like that, or they'd stick it just in some weird place. <laughs> um, almost like me and tax records. <laughs> <laughs> stuff it in some drawer. Or toys. Man. Yeah, like so that. the... So they, uh, and so they found this, and they, there were some of these really, really early um, Mus'haf pages. And some of them had written, they were called what's called a palimpsest. A palimpsest is a, a text where there's something written, and then underneath that, there was something pre- previously written. Because for using parchment or papyrus, these are very expensive, and they're also not like paper. They don't like soak up the ink. The ink kind of rests on the surface. So you can actually just wipe off the ink and reuse it. But uh, using things like, you know, um, ultraviolet light and stuff like that, you can actually read what was written previously underneath that. So they found one palimpsest that had this re- – it was like very – supposedly very early page of the Quran. And this was, you know, in the late 1990s. I think it was 1999. There was an Atlantic Monthly article. Yep. I don't know if you remember this, you know. Like it was just this magnifying glass, like cutting into the Quran. <laughs> like what is the Quran? Like scholars have to be so careful. And right. I, it's like basically every year – There'll be some newspaper article about this. Like, yeah, every year. Someone found like a stash of Mus'haf somewhere and like finally the truth of the Quran is going to be revealed. And then turns out it's nothing uh, nothing new, right? So, but this this uh, actually when the the German scholar who had this palimpsest page from the Sunnah manuscripts uh, refused, he kept saying like, oh, this is going to blow the lid off everything. Oh my God, it's going to tear the whole system down. <laughs> and no, nothing ever happened. And then finally, this one uh, scholar at Stanford, uh, Behnam Sadiqi, he actually got it and did a like a critical edition of it, wrote an article about it. And here's the interesting thing. Not only is it, it's very early. He concludes it's very early. It's actually pre-Uthmanic Codex. So it's it comes from before around 650 Common Era when uh, the Caliph Uthman uh, issues this, promulgates the official copy of the Quran and destroys all the other Mus'hafs. So this actually comes from before that. But here's the thing. It's not any different than the – it's essentially not any different from the Uthmanic Codex. So if Uthman sends out these, these musahif to the different garrison cities of the Muslim empire. And between these different musahif, there's like sometimes slight – there's like a wow, like an and is missing or something like that. Right. That's the same – That's those differences are no more than the difference between this pre-Uthmanic Palimpsest Mus'haf and those Uthmanic Mus'hafs. And so uh, another thing that's interesting is, like, for example, how is the Quran? So we know the Quran gets revealed, uh, the, you know, 
the his, history is that the Quran gets revealed by the, by God through the angel Gabriel to the prophet. But of course, this, the, the Quran that we have is not ordered chronologically. No. Yeah. Right? It's essentially ordered from longest to shortest surah. Right, which is like, which is one of the big frustrations for a lot of of people who approach the Quran. Yeah, but so the question is like, well, how did this happen? So the Muslim, our historical reports say that the Prophet, basically uh, ordered the verse. Some, you know, some whole verses came, some surahs came down as whole surahs. Right. Some surahs came down and, you know, a big chunk of it was kept, you know, came down at one time or or a little chunk of it came, then the Prophet would like move that around or sometimes like a verse, he'd insert a verse here and insert a verse there. And the idea, of course, from a Muslim perspective is this is all inspired by God. Um, But what's interesting is there's actually some reports in our history, in Islamic history, that the final ordering of the Quran was not done by the Prophet, was done by the, the, the companions and the early chaos right after his death. Right. Now, what's interesting about this is that because this uh, Sana palimpsest is actually ordered the same way as the Uthmanic Codex, it suggests that, and this is the, the, the author of the article's conclusion, he suggests that actually it was the Prophet who uh, ordered it. Yeah, why would they be similar? Yeah, exactly. Right, so right, it's, what's interesting is not only did, does this supposed thing that was, you know, blow the lid off everything, not only does it not blow the lid off anything, but it actually <laughs> confirms historical accuracy of not just the Muslim history, but actually the most kind of conservative Muslim history. Not right. even... Uh, so then uh, what... There's a really interesting article in... Um, there was, I think, a journal of the uh, Bolson School of uh, African Oriental Studies. I think about two years ago, it was a two-part article by a scholar from Oxford named Nicholas Sinai, and uh, he, I think he's German. He uh, basically has two really long articles, and the end, the conclusion is that um, until somebody actually gets some decent evidence, the 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 history that we should be assuming to be the kind of state of the field is basically the Muslim history of the Quran. Right. Right, and that there's no one's really been able to bring any evidence to suggest that that's not true. And then, uh, just the first issue of Journal of American Oriental, not uh, sorry, the Journal of the Academy American Academy of Religion, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, which is generally completely illegible. Like even <laughs> I read this, it's like this hardcore religious studies stuff. It's utter nonsense. But there's a really good article by a guy named Jonathan Brockup, the first issue of 2017 of the journal. It's called I think the. Islamic history and incidental normativity, I think is the name, the title of the article. Well, that is complicated. <laughs> and what he, what he argues is that, again, when it comes to the Quran and sort of early Islamic history, that unless you have some evidence that can really stand up to the general Muslim history of the Quran, then stop making these claims about, you know, oh, I'm disproving everything. Oh, we have the real, we've discovered the truth because you bring evidence that is not convincing, not solid. And uh, sometimes, by the way, the theories are so cockamamie right. mm-hmm. that they make, you know, these Western scholars are always saying, oh, Muslims are there, they are, everything is based on faith, not evidence. The <laughs> theories are so cockamamie, they take more faith to believe than the actual Muslim version. But it's almost like they're viewing us through their own prism, obviously. Definitely. So, I mean, definitely. That's so it's their own thing. issues with their own faith traditions, their exactly, own intellectual history. Exactly. So it's, it's you know, you know why, for example, why is it, okay, why is it so crazy Again, you don't have to believe the Quran is revelation. If you believe the if you believe the Quran was made up by the prophet and you you think the prophet was a fraud, okay, you're you know you don't believe, okay. But why is it so crazy to say the Quran comes from like mid seventh century Arabia? 
Is that that insane? They're like, no, no, that can't be the case. That's not how religion works. Scripture changes over time. It can't actually, the story can't actually be right, the, right. the, you know, the real story <laughs> can't actually be what we hear and we read history books. There has to be something to uncover. So again, because this is their own Western experience with the Old Testament, with the New Testament, with the history of the early church. Right, which exactly. Beginning in the 1700s, they start, you know, Western scholars start to really like, you know, they start discovering these early the writings of early church fathers that talk about gospels that aren't in the canon and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, but you also see and like other non-Western traditions as well. I mean, the the scriptures of you know of East Asia and things like that. There's not there's there's, there's a similar pattern in terms of the history of the religious literature, right? I mean, it's not like you have this one uh, one. Well, yeah, document, I mean, the, be, you know? yeah, that's true. But the, some, their scriptural traditions tend to be like very n- not comparable to kind of the Abrahamic mm-hmm. tradition. We sure, talk about sure, the Abrahamic sure. tradition, you know, it's really one family, you right? Know? It's like comparing different brothers, like how they're doing in school. Uh-huh. Know, <laughs> yeah. Or like which brother, which son's a doctor. Is the younger which one. one isn't the a younger doctor. one's always doing better. <laughs> but I think also just to kind of like segue a little bit back, you know, you have these critiques of, you know, people like Holland's uh, under the sword of Islam or whatever it was. And, you know, <clears throat> the shadow of the sword, the shadow of the sword or whatever it was. And then there's a documentary and he's like going off to these archaeological sites in Jordan and finding some supposed, uh, you know, early mosque that's in the wrong direction. And that's some sort of evidence of, I know, subhanAllah, you know, Muslim built, uh, you know, didn't have GPS and, you know, built some mosque slightly wrong direction. So you know, what's really amazing about early mosques is they're generally always pointing in roughly the right, right. direction. Like yeah. If you go, for example, if you go to the Kaidoween Mosque in Fez, right, everyone, right, right, the yeah. Yeah. they bit. have the qibla slightly different Off. because they, <laughs> they realize you know, like, they realized it. But you're yeah. like, Subhanallah, you know, I don't know, like I don't know the qibla of my hotel room, right? You know, uh, well, even in Spain, everyone obviously, as Muslims, you know, you may see images of this amazing mihrab in like in the mosque of like Cordoba, in the Grand Mosque of Cordoba, though. But the, what people may not realize, it goes due south. Yeah, you know, it's like straight into Africa. But at the time, I think it may shatter some of our own notions of our own scientific accomplishments sometimes. But I think it also shows that, like, oh, these things happen. You yeah, know? of course. I mean, of course, man. I mean, to think about, you know, I was I remember I was praying the wrong direction in my office for like five years. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we've all been there. Yeah. Someone came and told me like, well, "Why are you praying this direction?" I was like, "Oh no, this is the Kibla." Like, that's not the Kibla. <laughs> so the, I mean. Like, but the fact, what's interesting is, and there's a really good book called Islam as, uh, Islam as Others Saw It by Robert Hoyland, mm-hmm. not, um, not Tom Holland's, Robert Hoyland. Um, and in it, he has a really good discussion of, of one of the, one of the things he looks at is these early mosques. Because what he shows is that people, you know, contra- actually totally contrary to the idea that these early mosques show that the, the Qibla changed, you know, it's, you know, in the early Islamic history. No, no, actually, uh, they're generally pointing towards Mecca. And when they're not, they're just, they just made a mistake. So then another question that comes up is also when we go back to the historical, you know, official Sunni narrative, obviously understanding that in the Shi'i tradition, there may be discussions on Sayyidina Ali's composition of the Quran. There may be discussions of other Sahabas who had compilations of the Quran. And sometimes those are brought up even in the early theology or maybe in the classical age by opponents of mainstream or that orthodoxy that was emerging. Let's put it that way. Because I think a lot of times we make a mistake of saying that Sunni Islam was just Sunni Islam from day one without any development. Um, but Um, um Salama, the wife of the Prophet is credited at least in, in Muslim lore and also through the Hadith narratives that she had a kind of final version of the Prophet's Quran. You mean Hafsa? Hafsa, apologies. Yes, good correct. Okay. Yeah, so sorry, I was like, I was like, well, I don't know about sorry. this. <laughs> I was needed to read, to read my I notes. I think he was trying time. to test you, Dr. Brown. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah, go. I was trying to... <laughs> you passed. 
So anyways, so you have a wife of the Prophet, you know, who has this compilation of the Quran. And then that then becomes the basis for the Uthmani Codex. Is that a reasonable yeah, assumption? Yeah, so what's really interesting about um, early Islamic history is, you know, Muslim scholars, they're not, um, they're not trying to, like, cover something up because they you, – you see them trying to write about, like, you know, for example, scholars like Zuhri in the, the, the mid-700s or in the mid-800s, mid-900s, you know, they, they're, they're sitting there being like, okay – uh, what's the relationship between this this mushaf that gets compiled, the mushaf of Hafsa, right? So after the during the caliphate Abu Bakr, uh, a lot of companions get killed in one battle in Yamama, and so uh, Omar radiallahu has this concern that you know we need to like actually write the Quran down, and there's this Abu Bakr's you know I, I don't want to do something the Prophet didn't do, but he gets convinced like this is serious we need to actually have written compilation, so he has Zaid ibn Thabit. Who's a Medina? This is very interesting. Term. Zaid ibn and, and just if I can interject, and, and the, uh, just for our listeners, the Quran was written down uh, in different. It wasn't. It was. It was written down during the time of the Prophet in terms of different, like. Um, yeah, people had compiled, different. People had so their own the notes, like, but there was no official. There was no version. compilation. Of, there was no of official version, right? right? Yeah. Um, now again, it's important to remember they didn't have paper. They didn't have actually very easy materials to write on, and right, written, writing, writing materials are really expensive. Yeah. Uh, so Zaid bin Thabit, who's uh, was is from Medina, right? And he in Medina, the the only written tradition was the Jewish population of Medina. So Zaid bin Thabit had been to the Jewish schools in Medina, and he knew how to write Syriac, he knew how to write Hebrew, mm, wow. right? And he knew how to write Arabic. So he's put in charge of basically going around and compile, getting all the different. Uh, Looking at all the different written copies that are that are notes that are out there, to, of course the Quran is mainly preserved in the hearts of the Muslims and in their memories. So he goes and gets at least two uh, witnesses for every verse of the Quran, and then he uh, creates this this written version that stays with the the Prophet's wife, uh, widow, and the daughter of Omar Hafsa. And uh, then uh, during the Caliphate of Uthman. Around so he's Uthman uh, rules from 644 to 656 of the Common Era, and uh, he uh, basically uh, there's some question does does he base it on the Hafsa Mushaf? Um, does he sort of start totally uh, fresh? Because it's again Zaid ibn Thabit and a committee who are assigned with creating this official version. So it seems like. The best uh, evidence is that he looked at the uh, Hafsa Mushaf. He certainly took this into consideration, but he actually did the whole process again as well. And so then that version, uh, after that, all the other Mushaf are destroyed. Now there's the Mushaf of Ali, which is, again, doesn't survive. There's no, so, but the reports are that Ali's Mushaf was ordered chronologically. Right, very is interesting. It, is Ibn Masood also, isn't there? No, Ibn Masood was not ordered chronologically. Oh, okay. Ibn Masood's Mushaf actually, his, his, his version of the Quran, not his physical Mus'haf, but his kind of copies of his Mus'haf actually survived. And in fact, there's one scholar in the, in the 900s in Baghdad named Ibn Shambud who gets, uh, he's, he's reading the uh, Ibn Mas'ud uh, version in the mosque. And uh, he gets told to stop doing this and he refuses and he gets be beaten up. <laughs> he gets not beaten up like by a crowd. That doesn't happen anymore. He gets disciplined no by, the, by the caliph. <laughs> But the Ibn Mas'ud, even if the Ibn Mas'ud Mus'haf uh, doesn't differ from the Uthmanic Mus'haf, except in very small, small ways. Uh, so the uh, the one that we know most about, besides the 
besides the, uh, the obviously the, the Uthmanic Codex, the, the official one, it's this Ibn Mas'ud Mus'haf. But uh, we only know, uh, you know, we don't have the, I don't think we have the, the full thing, but we have, Muslim scholars did a pretty good job of recording, okay, this is where the Ibn Mas'ud Mus'haf differed from the Mus'haf we have. So this brings up another question about, you know, versions, basically, but also wording. <clears throat> we mentioned that basically that the evidence suggests that the Prophet was the original um, uh, source, at least in terms of where verses should go, and obviously being inspired by Allah, you know, for that composition. But when we look at some of the structural, um, deep structural similarities of the Quran, like nowadays you have studies by Raymond Farron and other like academics around this whole idea of ring theory, or mm. you know, so how do you see that it is a, as a possible way for Muslims in modernity to kind of look at the Quran? maybe anew and see that there's this amazing structure to the Quran and that obviously this is just further evidence of that. Because we see this with, you know, obviously when the Birmingham, um, when that manuscript was uh, announced and Muslims were very um, uh, happy because the dating corresponded to the dating of the of the, of the time of the Prophet So uh, how do you see these things as well, maybe I mean, that, helping that Muslims? That is different. The first part of your question is about like the actual... Um, Kind of the almost the literary nature of the, the Quran, and the second one's about the again the issue of yeah, historical right authenticity. Uh, you know, the historical authenticity. Uh, well, maybe you guys will publish my um, my blog pieces on that. I wrote some good stuff on the Birmingham Quran pages. Oh, definitely, I'll do it. Yeah, it's on your website, so our yeah, listeners can. But also no one ever goes on my website, so you should publish them on uh, okay on Emanwire. So yeah, I really uh, I've made some, I think pretty humorous remarks in those, those <laughs> articles. So the, uh, the, the question you're talking about is like kind of like what, how do you, from a literary or you know, narrative or you know, interpretive perspective, meaning uh, how does the Quran work? And of course, this has been a, a big source of, um, of question for um, not just Muslim scholars, but also Western scholars, right? Because, you know, uh, you have, uh, the, the Quran doesn't follow like a narrative framework, you know, it doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end. You know, there's certain, like for example, Surah Joseph, uh, Yusuf has a, is a narrative, but a lot of the other uh, surahs, you know, you have a story and then it'll jump to another issue, then another story, or maybe a series of stories that are connected. And, and the question is, you know, is, does a surah even have some unity or is it just, is it, is it essentially just a stream of consciousness? And there's one scholar, uh, his name is Farhan Farahi, in the um, yes, in the twelfth uh, century. Yes, he's a, he's an amazing scholar. Yeah. I think we had a discussion about him not that long ago. But yeah, go really? ahead. Really? Okay. Well, maybe I don't I don't know that much about him. But I mean, this but this scholar had this idea that you know every every surah has like a has a has a pillar has like a central pillar that it's built around. And Nazm al Quran, I think, was was his. Yeah. Theory. So Nazm al Quran is a big issue of you know the the how do what what is the order. Um, what does the order tell us, not only within the surah, but also but like the order of the surahs in relationship to one another? Right, the connection, like the beginning uh, of one surah with yeah. the end of the previous one and then the end of so the... So you have, you know, have two questions, right? So what is, you know, why are surahs ordered in the way they were? You know, why is uh, Baqarah after, uh, you know, why is Ma'idah after Baqarah? And then why you think... To... And then the other question is, you know, within surah al-Ma'idah or within surah al-Nisa, like, why are the, why is it ordered the way it is? And does these do these does each theory surah have some uh, theme or unity? Um, so uh, there's a book that came out uh, pretty recently. It's originally in French, but it's uh, I think the uh, the uh, author is not Muslim, as far as I know. 
is um, quick. It's really hard to pronounce. Quake Coopers. It's a Q U. I yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to Quakers yeah, or something like that. Right. So it's called the Banquet. It's about Surat al Maida, and it's it's a it's a huge. Book. I mean, it's a whole volume just on the ordering and literary. I mean, and it's fascinating. I mean, when you read this as a Muslim, you're like, oh my god, like I've never thought about this stuff. It's really interesting. It's really. It's, I recommend people get the book and you know, read it. It's in English now, and um, and uh, you know you could just, like imagine writing a whole volume about just like the ordering of Maida. And then, you know, you could do that for every surah. And so I think that uh, this is something that's like, it's like a, a, it's something that, that's like a, a fresh field almost. I mean, it's just barely been touched by scholars and, and uh, even Muslim scholars, I think, you know, right, barely right, scratch yeah, the surface yeah. of this. I thought that Raymond Farron's treatment of it was interesting. I mean, it's not a it's not a large work either, a, but it does reference the the banquet that uh, that you mentioned. Uh, is this interesting? Because I think as we read the Quran, we don't always notice these things, and um, I'm sure there's like I don't know. There yeah, is like you know, like <clears throat> some people have begin to analyze, or I mean, I've yeah. heard some analysis, like so, like you know, sort of that's like 20 verses, like verse one verses and verse 20 have a yeah. parallel two and 19. Three and you know yeah. Then like I mean, that. even just yeah. the first uh, like the first verses of Iqra, of Surah Al-Alaq that are revealed, they have that in this in the um, syllables, the number of syllables, they have that ring structure. Yeah, mm. so it is. So it, it's uh, you know I, I think it's just you know if you're you know Muslims are used to like oh did you know like you know the Quran predicted um, <laughs> you know gelato or something like that, and you, but the, you know the. the when you actually, so I mean, I think sometimes we can be skeptical about this, right. but when you read these analyses, you're like, oh my god! I mean, I really just have not been appreciative enough about of this work. Right. So what I wanted to also talk about is also the idea of wording, maybe how that impacted from the early manuscripts the different styles of recitation, or was it that the recitation impacted the manuscripts? Recitation, you mean qara'a? Yeah, the qara'a. readings. Yeah, the readings. Yeah. Um, well, this is a fascinating topic. So there's this, I mean, I don't want to get into, okay. So, I mean, there's an interesting question, right? Which is you have like, what is the, the Quran? Okay. Is the, the general idea is, I mean, I think it's correct to say that, you know, the Quran, and you often hear people say like, oh, you know, you say, oh, give me that Quran. And someone says, no, don't say that. So give me the Mus'haf, you know, like the Quran is, you know, so like, you know, that's not, we think about like the, the Quran is this like book you hold or whatever. No, the, the Quran is something you recite. The, the Mus'haf is just a kind of like a package, almost a skeleton that you right. use to, to, to store this thing, store this, this, uh, this revelation. Um, but uh, there is clearly like a uh, reciprocal interaction between the written tradition and the recited tradition, right? Uh, so you have uh, the, 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 when Muslims start to write down the Arabic alphabet is formalized to write the Quran down. This is what people understand. The Arabic alphabet prior to Islam was not a not the Arabic alphabet we know. It was basically like a pidgin language you use to write, you know, shopping lists and you know contracts and stuff like that. You, it didn't. It wasn't a standalone alphabet. So things like adding dots to distinguish between like a B and a T and a th or a dod and a sod, or a, a la and a ta. This is actually uh, done during the first, essentially during, we know it's the first 13 years of the, after the death of the prophet. They start these, using these dots. And then in the uh, several 
within the first couple of decades, they start using the uh, vowel markers to difference between, you know, mulk and milk and melek, right? Uh, so sometimes... Uh, but could that be just because there's also a lot of non-Muslims coming into? Yeah, Islam? exactly. Well, they, they, they're, right. they're most, it goes from basically a very small community to being a much larger. And, and you have like people like Duali and all these people who yeah. are. Yeah, Abul Iswala Duali. He's the one who's credited with uh, from this gener- generation of the successors. So um, they there this, but the Quran is already being. There's also not one Arabic language. So the Arabic language is just the language that is spoken in the Hejaz. And like probably the Tamim tribe in Central Arabia, and there's lo- so many dialects of Arabic, and some of them are like borderline other languages. So the Arabic language, as you know, classical Arabic, it actually comes out of the the Quranic Arabic. It's created by the Quranic Arabic. But because, for example, there's in the Hejaz in the Hejazi Arabic, they didn't have the medial Hamza. So when you say, for example, Mu'min, that's not how the Hejazis would say that. They'd say Mu'min. So in the Warsh reading of the Quran, right. they don't say mu'minun, they say mu'minun, right? That's the way this is used in Morocco. Basically, the only place it's used in, is in Morocco. So if you go to Morocco, you can buy a mushaf that's like a Warsh reading. <laughs> or for example, they don't say maliki uh, yawmidin, they say maliki yawmidin, right? Um, no, wait, instead of maliki yawmidin, they say maliki yawmidin. I'm yeah. getting mixed up. So the, uh, or in they say like, instead of, uh, kufu kufu wan ahad. They say kufu an, like ku, not kufu wan, kufu an. So very small differences. But the, this medial Hamza comes from the Tamim tribe. So this big tribe in Central Arabia, they said things mu'min. So their dialect actually influence. It becomes like the official dialect of the Quran, uh, the, of the, not the Quran, but of most of the readings of the Quran. Whereas the Warsh preserves that original Hijazi reading. So part of the original diversity is that you have like it would be like having a guy from Alabama, like a really thick Alabama accent, and then like a guy from, you know, Boston, a thick Boston accent, and then like a Scottish guy and, uh, you know, Daisy Uncle, and like they're all reading the same book, and yet they it sounds different, even though it's the same book. But uh, those readings are all originally authentic kind of readings of the book. Okay, but then you have instances where the writing uh, can influence reading. So in Surah Al-Hujurat, the, the verse, right? So if, a, if, a, if an iniquitous person comes to you with some piece of information, tabayyanu means, you know, to seek clarification, you know, make sure this is accurate, right? But uh, in the Hamza and Kisa'i, so these are the two of the seven uh, canonical narrations. It says, فتثبتو. Uh, now, unlike, you know, kufu'an, kufu'an, this you can see like this is the same sound, almost just like an accent difference. But tabayinu and tathebatu, it's not sound, doesn't sound the same, but it's written almost exactly the same way. Wow. So there's a possibility, which is that, okay, well, Hamza and Kisa'i just got this wrong and it's tabayinu. If you know, if you can, if you can picture Arabic alphabet, right? Tabayinu and tathebatu. Uh, ba and tha are just different dottings of the same word. Right, so there could right. have been theoretically a, a wrong so, transcription. Or, so that's one possibility. One possibility is just Kisai and Al-Kisai and Hamza were just wrong about this because there was a confusion in the writing and the majority is correct, Sabayanu. But another possibility is that that diversity actually exists as like a uh, uh, 
a rahma or like an instruction from God because tathabbatu means make some, so tabayinu make, means seek clarification. Tathabbatu means authenticate something. Mm. So There's different layers of meaning. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, when you, if someone comes, like did, right? If someone comes to you and says, hey, did you hear that, you know, uh, Sheikh so-and-so said that, uh, you know, you're allowed to drink uh, vodka or something during Ramadan, you're like, um, Tathabbatu, Tabayinu would be seek clarification. Tathabbatu is like, it's like, did he actually say this? <laughs> you know, like, okay, no, it turns out this is some, you know, idiot who reported this. He never actually said this. So the Tabayinu and Tathabbatu contain the two elements of seek clarification and understanding and then seek authentication in, in actually attestation of this report. Another example is like, uh, you know, the, the story of Harut and Marut, these two angels. So um, Malek is angel. And these angels come and they kind of have uh, sort of some like unproductive magic that they, or unproductive powers that God has given them, or they sort of twist the powers they're given and they use it to spread corruption in the world. But then the problem is, wait a second, like angels are not supposed to have free will. Right, right. So how can angels do stuff, right? You could say, well, God allowed that or God gave them the ability or something. But then... Uh, uh, this actually in uh, uh, Al-Baqilani, who's one of the, he dies uh, at 913 of the Common Era, 303 Hijri, 913 of the Common Era. He's one of the like founders of the Ashari School of Theology. So he, and then another scholar in the 18th, 19th century, Imam al-Bayjuri, Burhanuddin al-Bayjuri, the Sheikh al-Azhar, they have this theory that it's not Malak, it's Malik. Malik is king. So, and it's just a voweling difference. It's written exactly the same way. So maybe these are not two angels; these are two kings who are like causing all these problems. And then that's like, oh, that makes then then you don't have that issue anymore. Right. So you resolve that tension. So uh, there's sometimes these different vowelings actually uh, create possibilities of meaning that help us understand the Quran better. And I think that's a good point to kind of like show people that there's a lot of nuance to this discussion. We're not trying to bring up issues that people may have not thought of. Obviously, we're trying to encourage critical thinking on this point. And so... But and again, by the way, none of this stuff is, you know, Jonathan Brown, you know, pulling this out of <laughs> this some weird theory he has or some, you know, Western scholar has this theory. This is all straight out of Islamic tradition. Yeah. And I think it should be noted that the Islamic tradition is a very rich tradition. Oftentimes, people want a very simple answer, thinking that there was a seamless stream, you know, this line directly to the Prophet Well, I think there is. There is a direct line yeah, to the there Prophet. Is, but, but we have to think about, so when we think about English, like you just have to think about language differently. So why, you know, the way that we think about a language in terms of English is not the quote unquote correct way and then other people are messed up, right? We have a very specific, so in English, we write vowels, okay? By the way, up until like the 10 hundreds in, in writing in Germanic languages, like they wouldn't split the words up. So imagine you know, sometimes you get like book, books that are badly printed and there's no spaces between words. Like imagine actually reading a book that has no space between words. Right. And then somebody decided, we're like, we should really put space between words, right? So, but the idea that we write vowels, Arabs don't do that. Even to this day, they don't you know, write in the newspaper. You don't have short vowels written. You just have to know this stuff. So the idea that what you see on the page can only be one word. You know, you can debate like what does car mean? Is a car like a roller coaster car or a car like a train car or a right. car, you know, whatever, but it's just car. It's C-A-R. It can't be anything else, right? Um, but in Arabic, it's just C-R. 
So it could be car, it could be cur, it could be care, it could be, um, I don't know, you know, something, so, something so else, right? Yeah, right? But the point is like, you know, that's just a different way of thinking about language. And so it's not, it doesn't mean that the, the Quran is not one intact uh, entity across time. It's just the nature of language, it, the, the language of that entity is different from the way we think about language in English. Well, mashallah, um, I'd like to thank Dr. Brown for joining us for a very uh, interesting discussion. And um, I want to thank Irfan for, for joining us again. I got all my questions answered. If you didn't, maybe you should leave a comment and when we post this up. That was excellent. And go oh, read yeah, this yeah. banquet book. And also, <laughs> uh, Dr. Mustafa Azami, Rahimahullah, his history of the Quranic text is an excellent, excellent book. And it's now been published in a new edition. So there it's you got go. pictures okay. and everything. So we, we touched on a lot of topics, a couple of books. Raymond Farron's Structure of the Quran was talked about, The Banquet was talked about, and Dr. Azami's work as well on, on the on the history of the Quran text. You guys should definitely comment. And that. Dr. Brown's articles. Which oh, yeah, are obviously. On his website. Going to, no, no they're going to be on Emanwire. They well, right now be. they're on their web, website. So, Yo, you know, well, why, why don't you make them on Emanwire? We will fast put them on Emanwire. We know how long it takes you know, most of the things, right? No, it takes you no time at all. So, we will get them on Emanwire sooner rather than later. Inshallah, you can follow Dr. Brown and all of his academic accolades and everything that's happening. So good luck. Also, cop misquoting Muhammad. If you haven't heard that, heard about that book, you should have. It's a great read. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Dr. Brown. My we pleasure, hope guys. to have you on again. Uh, to our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, remember visiting manwar.com for latest uh, episodes and articles. And uh, until then, as alaykum. Peace be unto you. As-salamu